marks the 40th anniversary of the San Jose pay equity strike. We were told we were fired. So we went back to the union hall. And so we were gonna go on strike anyhow the next week. So we figured we were out earlier. We called it a lockout at first. In the late 1970s, San Jose city employees were frustrated with flat wages and pay inequities for women workers. They believed that jobs dominated by women were undervalued and underpaid. And they proved it through a multi-year campaign for pay equity led by AFSCME Local 101 Municipal Employees Federation, AFSCME Council 57. Their efforts went a long way towards closing pay gaps, but it wouldn't have happened without a strike in 1981. AFSCME Secretary-Treasurer Elisa McBride brings us the story of the first pay equity strike in U.S. history. In December of 1954, Boston meatpackers and CIO Local 11 were just over a month into a strike against the Colonial Provision Company. That strike went on to make history, continuing for 14 months, the longest in Massachusetts history. Interracial cooperation was also a hallmark of the struggle by the Boston meatpackers, who were red-baited and had their union decertified. The story of how these workers fought back and won is still inspiring and has important lessons for today's battles. On this week's Labor History in Two, the year was 1947. That was the day that the United Mine Workers leader John L. Lewis wrote the AFL, stating, We disaffiliate. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on this week's Labor History Today. Here's AFSCME Secretary Treasurer Elisa McBride to start off today's show. Stumbled to the kitchen, pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five. Working nine to five. What a Striketober and Strikesgiving are over, but worker strikes are still going strong. Kellogg's workers are voting on a tentative agreement after holding the line in Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and Memphis. Alabama miners are heading into their ninth month of standing up to Warrior Met Coal. And the wave of worker actions demonstrating power and the fight for fairness continues to rise. 
strikes are a last resort for workers because they require intense planning, sacrifice, and discipline. So the uptick in strike activity and the increased support for striking workers is a sign of the times. Workers have had enough. Workers are tired of going backward while corporate bosses and the ultra-wealthy cash in. Together, many workers are making the tough decision to walk off the job to achieve change. The use of the strike as a tool for demonstrating worker power has deep roots, and it will endure beyond 2021. Before this year of rising worker power ends, I want to shine a light on a significant strike in AFSCME's history. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the San Jose pay equity strike, the first such strike in AFSCME history. In the late 1970s, San Jose City employees were frustrated with flat wages and pay inequities for women workers. They believed that job categories dominated by women were undervalued and underpaid. They proved it through a multi-year campaign for pay equity led by AFSCME Local 101, the Municipal Employees Federation, part of AFSCME Council 57. Their efforts went a long way towards closing pay gaps, but it wouldn't have happened without a strike in 1981. The leaders of the fight were clear about the issue. Certain jobs in the city were dominated by women workers, and despite the high level of knowledge, judgment, and skill required for those jobs, they were the lowest paid. As union leader Joan Goddard put it in an interview with an AFSCME archivist, it's not just women, it's women's work. There are a lot of male librarians who don't get paid what they should be getting paid. For the members of AFSCME Local 101, it was a fight to raise the wages in those undervalued jobs, from clerical workers and data analysts to librarians and recreation leaders. In 1980, the local negotiated an agreement with city management to conduct a study of the value and the pay levels of all municipal job categories. The city had conducted a similar study at the management level, resulting in closed pay gaps. Workers had high hopes that the city would follow suit for non-management workers, but management objected. While agreeing that the job segregation existed, and that women were clustered in the lowest-paying jobs, they refused at first to do anything about it. Management even insisted that the cost of closing those gaps would have to come out of cost-of-living increases for all workers. Union members said hell no to that. Workers walked off the job on July 5, 1981, the day the previous agreement expired. They walked the picket line for 10 days. They remained strong, even when management sent letters to all bargaining unit employees threatening to fire them if they did not return to work. In fact, they turned that management tactic on its head by setting up a barbecue grill in front of City Hall and burning their letters at a huge rally. As Goddard put it, the moose stands firm and he does not give in. So our union mascot became the moose. On July 14th, they settled the strike, winning cost-of-living increases for all employees and a separate pool of money for pay equity adjustments for employees in female-dominated job classes. Over the next five years, $1.75 million was spent to close the gaps. 
workers delivered a massive victory for employees in the bargaining unit, for pay equity, and for union power. According to the president of AFSCME Local 101 at that time, more than 500 city workers, women and men, became new members during the campaign. It's worth remembering this strike as we celebrate its 40th anniversary. It fanned the flames of other pay equity campaigns led by AFSCME locals and councils across the country, from Washington State to Minnesota to Connecticut. It positioned AFSCME as a leader on the issue of pay equity for women and people of color, a fight we're still waging. It is part of the history of our union's growth, especially among women in public service. And it reminds us all of the power of collective action, then and now. Another leader in the fight, Pat Curia, said it best when she talked about the strike victory. That's why you need a strong union. Cosm, the history of Local 11 could be said to be the history of the international. First of all, Local 11 began as a radical militant local. It was formed in the main by Italian radicals from the old country who underwent terrible working conditions here in the Boston market. Now, the best people I ever met were Italian anarchists. They were men of principle, they were men of character. They were, they were just downright idealists, I guess. <laughs> they formed the, uh, the heart of the uh, local, and they helped organize Local 11. And there were many unsuccessful efforts before it was finally uh, organized. We tried to work on the employers to hire uh, more blacks because uh, uh, that was a, uh, a recognized weakness in our in our armor, so to speak. And so we tried, and we were partially successful, but the uh, keep in mind the practice of, of uh, getting a job in the market was, you know, word of mouth, mostly. You uh, and the Italians tried to get their paisani in, and, uh, and the Jewish members the same thing with their relatives. But we did succeed to a, to a small degree, but we had only begun the process of 
of breaking down the discrimination on against uh, the hiring of blacks. But the international union was was uh, as was and has been always. I think the prime, the first union in America to consistently seek out blacks for leadership. I came to Boston, I, I expected the, the relationship between black and white to be very good. I found it, I didn't find the relationship good until I got into the union. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I, I felt, you know, like I was a part of the community. But out in the streets, I didn't feel like a part of the, the community. And uh, because I, I could see little things happening, mm. you know, mm. and uh, I become very conscious. When I started on the night shift, well, you really you couldn't go to the ladies' room unless you took have someone to take your place because I worked on the assembly belt and the belt wouldn't. Uh, but uh, we had a lot of problems with it at night. On days, they didn't have as much problem with the... But we worked in after a while. We worked in so we could go to the ladies' room. But we couldn't go unless someone replaced us. Well, I caught my finger in one of the machines once, and all they needed was a little plate. After that, they put the plate on. But Well, I think everyone got some sort of, of form of arthritis. Uh, might not be bad, but if you work in the cold and the dampness, a lot of them complain they have a little arthritis. So uh, put the blowers on. It was uh, hard, but you had to work there, and that was it. We had one case of a man who uh, had a whole wheel of hams fall on him, and the supervisor came over screaming at me and the rest of the workers, forget the man on the floor, he'll be all right. Get the hams up because the inspector tagged the whole department and shut us down. We can't have that. There's the guy lying there unconscious. We used to go to, the, I believe it was the Hancock Clinic, one time when I injured my hand, I had to go have stitches. The driver for the clinic says, I service, we service various companies around Boston. In Colonial Provision, we have more calls to take injured people to the clinic than any other company we service. So that in itself tells you what the working conditions were like in Colonial. On October 27th, 1954, uh, we held a union meeting of Colonial and Boston Sausage Workers at the Haymarket Square Union Hall. And uh, we were preparing the people for a strike vote that was going to take place uh, the following week because our contract ran out in September and we weren't going to work without a contract. So uh, what usually happened in those days, we would stay at the Union Hall uh, longer than we were supposed to. For example, I'd ask permission for a union meeting uh, during the lunch hour, but we would go over the lunch hour uh, and use that as pressure to force the company to settle grievances. And I would usually get on the phone and say, uh, will you reinstate so-and-so, you know, before we come back to work? And it worked. We usually settled a lot of grievances that way. It really was a job action, but we got away with it for years and years. 
uh, the company was determined this wouldn't happen again. And so about uh, 1.30 or so, we got a phone uh, call from the lawyer. And we're told, get back to work uh, right away or everyone will be fired at Colonial. We were told we were fired. So we went back to the union hall. And so we were going to go on strike anyhow the next week. So we figured we were out earlier. Was we called it a lockout at first. But we were going to vote to go on strike anyhow. So we had a meeting at Faneuil Hall later to take an official strike vote, which we did. And it was unanimous. And so uh, Baldo, Boston Sausage uh, joined us. And we're, we went on strike and set up picket lines. Hey, we're only on strike a few days when the company started putting ads in the paper and using employment agencies illegally. They didn't say there was a strike or any labor problems there, so we had to uh, fight that uh, through our attorneys. But uh, eventually, I'd say in a week or two, they hired buses. And they had uh, gone searching for people in the black community where there was a lot of unemployment promising them big jobs. They went to Maine, they went down to uh, wherever there was unemployment, in mill towns, and they hired people. And what they did, they told us for a bunch of Reds, and uh, that all we wanted was our, uh, we wanted everything. We wanted our own uh, birthdays, holidays, and all kinds of propaganda. They were troublemakers. And they did recruit scabs and strike breakers, and they had police, both private and public, uh, escorting them in. Okay. See, back in those days, we were strong in a picket line, and people were scared. They were, they were very reluctant about crossing the picket line. But then the company got an idea that we would go up into Roxbury, Dorchester, take a truck, and hire, get these people to come to work for Colonial, bring them back in the truck, back the truck up to the platform, and they go into the plant out of the truck. That's how they got the workers to come in to work for Colonial because they were afraid to walk in the plant by themselves. Then they started using automobiles. There used to be a caravan, about six or seven cars that leave that plant full of workers, take them to the station. And then when we got the word where they were going, letting them out, then they had trouble on their hand because that's when we could get to them. I worked there, yeah, I was a strike breaker, but I had a job. It was no best thing about working at Cologne. It's the only thing that I wanted the job. And once I got a job, you understand, I held it. That's what I had to do. And when I held this job, I held it for my, my mother and my father. And when I draw money, I would send the money back to them to take care of business in West Virginia. That's the only thing I did. That's the only thing I did. And I had to do it because we didn't have nothing down there. Because father was on, on the coal mine strike and all that kind of stuff. Somebody had to do something. And I was the lead man. The oldest son. And he told me, 
My father told me, he said, son, do the best thing that you can do. And that's all I can tell you. Downstairs in the basement of uh, Colonial, and I saw strike breakers and foremen down there, and they were cutting hoses, and they were given with a knife, and they were giving each worker on the way out a piece of rubber hose to fight off the Union people. So uh, they came out uh, probably a, a few at a time. So about nine or ten o'clock, it was time for me to go home. I was out all day, and uh, a car was waiting for me right near the plant. So when I drove through the tunnel, they followed me, and they were carrying hoses, waving them out the window at me. So what I did, I just maneuvered, went around the tunnel, around the back where Maverick Square is, and somehow or other, I think I lost them. But we were afraid, when I got home, I was afraid my house was going to be attacked. So we put furniture up against the uh, front door, and we turned out the lights, we put the kids to bed, we just hoped that nothing would happen. And we had a couple of stabbings. We had one of our members who was stabbed during a fracas, and the police arrested him. When they took him down to the station house, they worked him over. Not the, the company uh, hired thugs, to uh, try to break the strike. They used every conceivable tactic that was possible. And uh, like I say, uh, it was very bitter. And then some of us after a while had to get other jobs. Well, the neighbors figured that a lot of communists used to go on strike and you, you had to be a radical really to go on strike with all the jobs around, go somewhere else. You don't have to stay there. And it was very hard. Uh, I know a lot of the families of the strikers, there was a lot of fights and divorces and all, because after all, if you don't work, you just can't live. The support we got from other unions was great. Uh, uh, pickets would go down to a General Electric plant, and we'd collect several thousand dollars. They were very generous. Uh, they'd go to a Four River shipyard, and Local 5 members were very generous. We go to the uh, Revere Sugar Plant, where there were several thousand workers at that time in Charlestown, and they were very generous. And the best of all were the packing house workers in Nepco, in Columbia, in Roundsville, and all that maybes. And all these workers would, every week, the shop store would go around and pass the hat. And this is what you know kept us going besides the, what the International Union was able to send us. The Union is behind us, we shall not be moved. The Union is behind us, we shall not be moved. Just like a tree that's standing by the water, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We 
shall not, we shall not be moved. After a few days of picketing, the company sent in, got the strike breakers to go into the plant. And we saw whatever we were doing at the plant was not uh, helping. And we're getting the, the work out, and we started a uh, Don't Buy campaign. We send out cards with six people visiting stores that were selling the uh, product. Ask them uh, not to buy the product anymore. And if uh, they continued to buy the product, we uh, set up a secondary boycott against that store passing out leaflets, telling the people not to buy colonial products. When you were delivering those leaflets and going to the grocery stores, do you have any, any evidence that the, your, what you did was effective? Did you ever see stores drop colonial yes. products? Can you tell yes. a story about that? Yes, it was very effective because after a while, the pressure was got to be so great on the stores that they just automatically stopped putting meat on the counters. Whatever the colonial products was on, they just, some of them would remove them, and some of them wouldn't, but it was effective, very effective. Norman Furman, along the radio station that we ran ads on, uh, gave us an idea. He said, look, he, he was very sympathetic, and he says, why don't you uh, guys have a jazz concert? He says, I can get you some of the best entertainers around. They're all members of the union, the musicians' union. And uh, he says, they won't charge anything. And he says, I play their records all the time. And so they're going to do me a favor. And I'm going to ask them to come. So we, uh, we, we had a jazz concert. And we had all the local people like Savvy Lewis, Fat Man Robinson, and all, all the local bands who were active in that period. But best of all, we got Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington happened to be in town. So Norman Furman says, uh, Duke, would you mind coming to a strike benefit? He says, no, he's been the union man all my life, and I'd be delighted to go. So Duke Ellington came on the stage, and I happened to be on the stage when he came in. I almost collapsed. Duke Ellington, he came in very modestly, quietly, sat down, wished us luck, and he went over to the piano. There was a piano down in the pit, and he played all his famous songs. Now, the piano was pretty tinny. It was never tuned up. It didn't bother him. So Furman asked him later, how did you feel playing that old tinny piano? He says, when I started, all pianos were that way. He says, in Harlem, in Washington, D.C. He says, it brought back the old days. company that has the, the strike bond can call for a decertification election and the scabs can vote and the workers who are replaced, they call it replaced when the scabs, when they have enough scabs in to get their regular production of. And uh, the scabs vote can be counted and the workers votes are not counted. You're, you know, you're out of the picture completely. So on March 10th, 1955, 
an election was held at, uh, at Faneuil Hall, a cradle of liberty. And uh, here we lost our freedom when the company managed to win because of the way it was rigged. The uh, union workers, as many as we could get, went and voted. But their votes were not counted. Only the scabs, strike breakers, were counted. So we were decertified. And it so happens that we are the only union that I know of in the United States that ever got back to work with our union after a decertification election. Usually that's the end. The union's all done. <laughs> but we came back. So uh, what happened, we uh, started an organizational campaign, an organizational strike. And that was to organize the strike breakers and the scabs. And so Doug Johnston and I got together every week. And we'd write out leaflets and we'd go down, uh, pass them out to the scabs going to work. No longer did we uh, threaten them. No longer did we uh, call them names. Now we went to the bars when they hung around nights after work and asked them to sign up. Uh, organizers from the Packing House Union went into all these bars and they told them, uh, think uh, conditions pretty bad? And they said, yeah, they're terrible. We do need a union. So some union cards were being signed by the strike breakers and scabs. Now, at first, a lot of our union people didn't like that idea. We had to sell them. But what have you got to lose after you're out on strike, you know, for six months? So uh, over six months. So they agreed. The reasoning was to put pressure on the company to sell, to find out that they'd have to, so the company would find out they have to have a union, whether it's us or whether it's the people they hire. And uh, we drove them crazy. Uh, before they settled the strike, they said, we don't want to negotiate with Local 11. And uh, we want a different number with Colonial, you know, would have the Colonial workers to have their own local. Evidently, they thought they could, uh, you know, make it a company union. So uh, we gave them another number. The union gave them uh, local 611. And uh, Mr. Rabinowitz says, oh, no, you're sneaky. You still got 11 in there. I want a different number. So he said, okay. Uh, they changed it to 616. And so finally it was agreed. We would have our own local, local 616, just for colonial workers. We're black and white together. We shall not be moved. We're black and white together We shall not be moved just like a tree That's standing by the water We shall not be moved When I went back to work and found out that they had to keep the strike breakers it didn't sit too well with me but I knew this is what we had to do we just had to, had to do it so I knew that sooner or later after working with them, then they would realize what they had did wrong and what the union really stands for. And that's, we then after working with them for a while, we got along well. We all seem to have the same idea at that time. How do you unite the people? So Johnny Mitchell, Don Smith, and myself, we got together and we all had one thing in mind. We gotta get Sheldon Coates. He'd be the person, you know, black leader to unite, you know? to unite the uh, workers, because the old people, white or black, loved them, and the new people that came in didn't know him, but we sure, because of his personality and his influence in the uh, Roxbury neighborhood, they would accept him. I don't think uh, blacks had 
much confidence in blacks at that time because uh, he didn't think he had power. Uh, but I found out that uh, you can get power by doing and what you feel was honestly correct. If you work in a person's interest and being honest, and uh, I got the power that I got, I had was from blacks and whites. So, uh, and I remember when I first walked on the line there, after the strike, those were white people that was telling the black people they had shot them. And I don't know what else they were saying, but they were amazed and maybe they were surprised that Shelton was a black man like them. One of the things I felt I was very proud about is when we caught with the big packers and financially, rates, job rate. I didn't know we were there until I went to a, uh, a wage meeting uh, in Chicago and they passed out books. And I happened to look in there and I saw Colonials had made it because we were way behind. We got behind and we had to catch up. And that was one of the things that I really wanted to do because I felt that if we I felt that we were good workers, and I felt that we uh, oh, uh, should get the same as any other good worker, whether they were in Chicago, New York, or in Boston. At the Colonial Provision Company, the workers showed no lack of militancy in trying to keep their plant open and save their 600 jobs. But the forces of shifting industry and political reality were too strong for the members of Local 616 and their supporters to overcome. It seemed like I'm losing my family. I've been with a lot these people for a lot of years. I've been here for 28 myself, and then we were just one big family. We were told that Colonial was being sold. It took us about five minutes to figure out that they were going to close Colonial. Thornapple Valley got it. Thornapple Valley plans to use the colonial trademark but produce the meat in Michigan. To all the members of Local 616, what kept us going was their, their enthusiasm and their desire to work and to keep it here. I'm sorry we couldn't go all the way. But I'm proud of you. Thank you. Me to be here today. After working in a packing plant for some 20 years, 
I can't think of anybody else I'd rather be with but packing house workers. You are a great inspiration, not only to myself, but to a lot of people. It's two years since that plane closed, and still I'll bump into people who are not in the plane, who are not in the hotels, but who want to talk about what happened to me and how much courage you had, and what kind of a fight you put together. And you have a great history in that unit. You really have a great history. And one of our problems as trade unionists is sometimes we don't remember that. We let that history go by. Like I said, we, I had to learn my past. I learned it first from Charlton Coates, and he gave me best advice. And this is what it's like in our unions today. That you can cooperate, work with the employer, but you will never be able to join their club. You are fighting for your people, and they are fighting for their profits. I will say to people that don't know anything about unions to learn, because everything you got today, all your social programs and your, your uh, social security, your uh, retirement benefits, your food stamp for the hungry, and all that came from unions. Didn't come from big companies giving it to you. It's what unions fought for all the years to come. And from where I sit, we're about to lose that. And once we lose it, I feel sorry for the younger people that's coming along. Because when they lose it, then they're going to see what unions was all about. This is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1947. That was the day that the United Mine Workers leader, John L. Lewis, wrote the AFL stating, We disaffiliate. Lewis had had a stormy history with the American Federation of Labor. He was central to the 1935 split that soon led to the founding of the Congress of Industrial Organizations. By 1942, he led the United Mine Workers out of the CIO. Reasons included disagreements over labor's relationship to President Roosevelt and U.S. entry into World War II and the running of the CIO itself. For a brief time, the United Mine Workers reaffiliated with the AFL. But by the fall of 1947, Lewis found himself in fundamental disagreement with the Federation over its response to the recently passed Taft-Hartley Act. 
At the October AFL convention, the discussion centered on the signing of anti-communist affidavits as required by Taft-Hartley. Lewis was virtually alone in his refusal to comply with the act. He noted that the act would have been stillborn if labor leaders had stood tall and refused to sign the affidavits. Further, he said, quote, This act is a trap, a pitfall for organizations of labor. This act was passed to oppress labor, to make difficult its current enterprises for collective bargaining, to make more difficult the securing of new members for this labor movement, without which our movement will become so possessed of inertia that there is no action and growth. In a labor movement where there is no growth, there is no security for its existence, because deterioration sets in and unions, like men, retrograde. Despite the split, the United Mine Workers would remain a powerful, independent union for more than 40 years. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Hope you enjoyed it, and you can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, we hope you do. Please like it in your podcast app, cast it along, leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Our story of the Boston Meatpacker strike came from the film Glory Days. Boston colonial packing house workers recall the strike of 1954-55, produced and directed by Cynthia McKeon, released in 1988, remastered in 2019. We've got a link in the show notes, and it's worth checking out for some terrific visuals. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Today's music includes 9 to 5 by Dolly Parton and Celebration by Cool and the Gang, both top hits in 1981, the year of the pay equity strike. Thanks again to ASME Secretary Treasurer Elisa McBride, who brought us the story. We've got a link to more of her great columns in the show notes. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time. Dedication to last throughout the years.